0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode nine um, of Jointly Venturing. We are very delighted to have with us today my old friend, Cindy Cohn, who's the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of the leading international NGOs working on internet freedom. And she's in San Francisco, I'm in Australia. Hey, Cindy. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Right on, tell us about what Electric Frontier Foundation is doing these days and maybe a little bit on its origins.
1: Sure. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is the oldest nonprofit uh, working to support freedom and privacy online. We're the the world's oldest digital rights group. It's quite a movement right now, um, but we were the first. um, And we're the biggest. We're based in San Francisco. And our job is to try to make sure that when you go online, your rights go with you. Um, We're involved in, um, you know, the kind of free speech, privacy, and innovation are the three pillars of what we do. Um, And we use law, and we use technology, and we use activism to try to get us there. Um, So that's, that's, those are kind of our tools. Um, We've got about 90 people. And uh, we have activists and technologists and lawyers and lots of people in between. Um, EFF was founded in 1990 by uh, John Perry Barlow, who's a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, uh, John Gilmore, and Mitch Kapor, who was the creator of Lotus Notes. Uh, old school people mm-hmm. might remember that was one of the first spreadsheet programs, um, and they were involved in the in the early days of the internet and realized that. Um, there needed to be some people who were dedicated to making sure that users were represented in the digital age. And there, there was, at this time, the, the US government was not at all familiar with technologies and they would engage in these raids on people's houses and you know, basically pull everything that was plugged into the wall and, and massively overreact to what was going on online. And the EFF was created to try to bring some balance. Um, and make sure that, you know, the Bill of Rights and Human Rights applied to people's activities online.
0: Right. So almost 30 years in existence now. And, I mean, you have the feeling that you're winning? Or do you feel (laughs) that the uh, (laughs) powers that be are slowly engulfing you and all of the people that think like we do?
1: Well, I think that that the... The internet is certainly a much bigger deal than it was when we started, and that means that the the fights are bigger as well. There's a lot more at stake than there was in the 90s. So, you know, I think that we have succeeded in some initial framing of the internet. People think of uh, of the internet as a place where they can go and and voice their opinion and be heard. You know, you don't have to convince a newspaper to run your voice if your voice. You know, if you want to get out there and talk to your friends and and organize, the internet is really a place for that. And, and that seems obvious to us now, but it really wasn't uh, in the beginning. Um, so I think there are things that we take for granted now. You know, we're, we're here. We are. We're using the internet. You're interviewing me from Australia, and it's just like a Sunday, you know, normal day. Um, that's pretty crazy if you think about it. And and now it's so commonplace that sometimes people forget about that. That but that that distance, physical distance, doesn't really matter for what you can learn and who you can be connected with and and who you can stay connected with. Um, that's really the one of the amazing things that the internet has given us all. And I think these days, sometimes people take it for granted and lose sight of it it or think it was inevitable. And I think none of those are true. Um, At the same time, of course, you know, there is a global concern about the rise of authoritarian thinking, um, the rise of um, intolerance around the world. And the internet is not immune to from that either. And it is a technology, but it reflects the larger society. And you know, to the extent that we have those problems offline, we have them online too. Um, And so, you know, some days I feel very um, happy and proud of what we're doing. And and some days, you know, it just feels like it's fight after fight after fight. And, you know, we, we get two steps forward and two steps back sometimes. So, you know, just this last week, the European Parliament signed off on a a horrible internet law that um, I think they don't, I think they were so mad at Facebook that they didn't really realize what they were going to do, what they were doing, but they're basically going to require people to have filters, uh, anybody who hosts anything on the internet to have filters, uh, so that anything you might want to say on the internet has to go through a filter first before it actually gets posted online. Um, and the, the nominal reason is for copyright infringement. But we know that once you put these kinds of censorship tools in place, they don't just You know, they're not just used for the original purpose. And even as to the original purpose, um, you know, filters are really uh, bad and awkward tool to try to do what Hollywood wants done.
0: Right. So should we should we trust Facebook?
1: (laughs) No, you shouldn't trust any. (laughs) No, of course not. I mean, we have a system that should be based on the idea that 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 anyone, uh, you know, uh, might. Might do the wrong thing sometimes. I mean, that's why we have checks and balances uh, in our system. That's why human rights has checks and balances. This idea that any anybody, especially a you know publicly traded company that's trying to make its next numbers is going to be all good is um, I mean it's folly. Um, I think Facebook is you know uh, they're a company. They're trying to make a lot of money and they're going to make the decisions uh, in favor of that. And that's not the same thing as having the public interest at heart.
0: Right. Now, I mean, there was a lot of thinking at the beginning days, the early days of the internet, particularly by you know progressively-minded, internationalist-minded people, that this would be the vehicle by which we could finally do what we're trying to do at Jointly Venturing in Oneness World, which is bring the world together in a unified manner based on the easy-to-understand principles of, you know, one human family should also have one single polity, and that nation states and the ideas and thinking behind them are perhaps uh, passe now, and we need to move in a much more global direction. And the internet was seen as an incredibly valuable tool that could physically, you know, enable people to have more connections, to have more uh, global uh, relationships, and to essentially push politics, as well as culture and everything else, into a more unified global planetary perspective whereby we could all act locally and think globally and yet if we look at recent developments politically uh, in virtually all corners of the earth uh, we see the internet all too often being used as a tool to foment exactly the opposite vision Uh, one of nationalism, populism, racism, white supremacy, you name it. All of the things we thought we had already transcended um, are sort of coming back with a vengeance. And arguably one could say that they wouldn't have come back with such a vengeance had the internet not been there to facilitate um, the growth of that sort of rancid, old-time, backwards thinking so what what are your thoughts on that does the internet really bring us together does it make us into world citizens like uh we would like to see or is it actually a tool in the greater tribalization of of all of the peoples of the world
1: well i think that there's um i think both Right. I think that that both of these things are true. I mean, I think the tool is just a tool. It's kind of like, well, we've got hammers and we can build things with them. And then we can also hit people over the head with them and kill them. You know, what's your position on hammers? And I guess what I would say about the technology is it's as good as we are. And I think that anybody who magically thought that technology was going to bring us all together, I'm sorry to say um, we have to do the hard work of convincing people around the world that this vision is the right vision. And the technology is not a way for us to cut corners. It may be a methodology to help us talk to more people at the same time than we could. Again, you don't have to convince the you know head of Hearst. You, know, you don't have to convince Randolph Hearst in order to get into the paper. It, it definitely helps us reach more people. But it doesn't necessarily help you convince more people that your vision is the right one. And I think what we're seeing right now is a is a pretty, you know, the, and the technology will help connect the people who don't like your vision as well as it helps to connect the people who, who does. The technology is neutral. And so I think that the, the answer for people like you and me who, who really do, I think, have a, a bit of this vision is that we have to do the hard work of convincing people. And the technology isn't going to give us any shortcuts um, towards the convincing people part of it. It might give us shortcuts to the talking to people part of it.
0: Right. I, I, I think that's probably true to a certain extent. But, you know, my, my experience uh, personally was always that, you know, the greater exposure that one had to the rest of the world, the greater the likelihood that one would see the similarities amongst people rather than and, and really cherish the differences and, and see those as something really interesting and something worth preserving. But in fact, the way I see things playing out, not only is it a tool – which can very easily be misused and I agree it is certainly simply a tool used by very fallible human beings at the same time it's being you know it is being used to foment all sorts of ways of thinking that really should be you know banished to the annals of history and at the same time it's being used increasingly by authoritarian and and not even authoritarian but close you know Ultimately, seeking to be authoritarian regimes to monitor uh, their popu- you know, people's populations, nations' populations, and in essence, stifle dissent. So instead of it being a vehicle by which people can speak freely, through instead it's often used as a surveillance tool, whether passively or or actively. And that's also obviously a problem. Once again, it's not the technology only, but it sure seems to be playing more into the hands of dictators and autocrats around the world in many respects than people themselves you know the, of course everybody attributed the the Arab Spring um, five to ten 15 years ago across so many Arab countries um, to the use of social media and other internet-based tools as a way of organizing that eventually led to the fall of a couple of governments and uh, the installation of new ones, which in many respects turned out to be even worse than the previous ones. Um, But nonetheless, you know, that tool was there and used by the population. But now that very same tool is being used as a means to ensure that it never, ever happens again. So what, I mean, what can we do about that? How can we use this tool, this incredible tool, um, to really promote democracy and human rights and equality and and non-racial futures, et cetera, um, instead of letting it be used by dictators and autocrats?
1: Well, I think that the, I think a couple of things. One, I I think that it is still the case that um, we help at EFF, we help people all around the world who are trying to get their voice heard and they're using the internet to do that. And I, I think that it's, it's, it's easy to overlook those people um, because of the, you know, the noise of the, the, the rise of autocrats. But, you know, the number one thing that people still are asking us to do is to help them get their voice heard. And those are people who are tracking atrocities in Syria. Those are people who are tracking the atrocities in Myanmar. I mean, people talk a lot about Myanmar and how the, the generals used Facebook to create, you know, really the situations from some horrible human rights abuses. But the other side, the people who are documenting the human rights abuses, they were using the Internet, too, to get their voice out. Um, so I, I worry that if we slide too much into just looking at the the, the one side of it, we might throw away... Um, And embrace a censorship strategy, which I see happening in the United States a lot and in Europe a lot, um, that's going to end up hurting the most vulnerable. I mean, power works the way power works. And marginalized people have always had a harder time having a voice than powerful folks. Um, And the same thing is is true now. Um, So... I just I don't want to I don't want to slide by into kind of the um, not recognizing the role that many, many marginalized groups around the world are still trying to get their voice heard in the first place on the use, and using digital technologies to do that. And the reason I say that is to recognize that, you know, um, there's a lot of babies in that bathwater and we have to be careful what we do in response to the rise of hate um, that we don't make it harder for them, that we make it easier for them. Uh, To continue to get their voices heard, because I think empowering people is still the goal. Um, And, uh, and empowering people. I mean, I think one of the sad lessons for me is that your your theory that if you just expose people to other cultures, they will always think that's a good idea and want more of it um, Mm -hmm. doesn't turn out to be true for um, everybody. It it turns out to be true for uh, a certain segment of each population. And it turns out to be really, really scary for um, another segment of the population. And I think people, we need to um, work to find a way to make that part of the population think that there is good in in, in one world for them as well um I, I think that it that, that 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 is for me the sad lesson is this idea that the thing that made me excited about you know international human rights and this idea that all humans are one like that works for me and it works for a lot of people like I think you and me Scotty sure. uh, it doesn't really work for it doesn't work for a lot of people and I, I think that we need to dig a little deeper into our Ways of thinking to try to help show people for whom change and difference is not exciting, but indeed is scary, why that's still the right thing to do. Um, and I think that that you know, as this is one of the things that when I, you know, in this country, people are talking about. Well, what do we do about hate speech? What do we do about the fact that people are saying really bad things uh, on the internet and fomenting a lot of hatred? And I, I really think that if you're solving for speech instead of solving for hate. You're Mm -hmm. not going to succeed. We have to be able to convince these people that they're wrong and that there is a, you know, that there is a better way to go about in the world and that, you know, all of humanity can be the us. Um, You don't you don't need to have the you know, the other scary them. Those people are people just like you. They have children just like you. They want to see the best for their children. You know, nobody ever around the world said, well, you know, I'm happy about the fact that the police came and took my son in the night. Like right. we have this in common as humans, but we need to do better at, I think, convincing people that this version of the world is a better version of the world for them because it's scary to a lot of people. Um, I mean, this is me getting away from my role as a, you know, kind of a lawyer and a, you know, a, a human rights person and more in kind of some of the sociology and psychology of some of the stuff that's going on. So I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, I can, I can, I can talk to you all day about, you know, international human rights and free expression and why we are, uh, you know, how to convince people that this this model of the world is a good model of the world and one they should get, be get behind is not really my expertise.
0: Well, it, ultimately, it's everyone's expertise because everybody's going to be involved somehow, right? If um if we do have ultimately, you know, a truly unified planet that's comprised of you know our species, right, in one legal framework in one global federation whereby everybody is equal to everybody else and you know i i mean i hold out my my hope in that regard is based very much on you know personal experience having traversed the world many 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 times you know been working in all corners of the planet in in often very difficult circumstances war zones disaster zones slums etc where you know the similarities that i've experienced in the probably millions of people I've had interactions with over the years, you know, really gives me great hope that ultimately everyone does know at the core of their being that we are in fact all the same and, and that the little differences that do exist are basically what culture is, you know? And other than that, you know, what we want ultimately um, at, at our core is essentially the same thing. So that that gives me hope. Cosmopolitan societies, you know, that work very well, that they, those give me hope, you know, um, a sharing of, of ever increasing amounts of information and culture and music and food and travel and all of that, that also, you know, gives me lots of hope. But at the same time, you know, we are going through a really difficult historical period, which once again, from a hope perspective, is probably just the end phase of the, let's say, nationalistic, uh, you know, identity, racist, in inequitable phase of human history that we are going through now. And once we successfully navigate it, we will end up in a place that is much farther along than, than we have ever been as a species. And probably not only out of philosophical reasoning but simply out of necessity as we realize that the greater disunity there is the greater the problems there will be so not rec- not you know failing to recognize of course the problems that emerge from globalization and neoliberalism and all of that which is which are many um you know going backwards in time and looking ever inwards within countries instead of looking ever outwards is has really never worked. And, and I don't really think it's going to work now. But let, just stay, staying on that theme for a moment, you know, one of the issues that we've um, debated here at Oneness World and Jointly Venturing is the whole question of, of global voting and the, the technological possibilities of global voting um, as a tool by which to encourage popular participation everywhere to at least comment on themes of a global nature. So maybe not on every, you know, new street that's going to be built or, or new local issue that emerges in every place, but in, true, you know, matters of truly global significance. Um, what if what if the world population had the ability to comment in the form of a vote on a, on a non-binding referendum down the road for some fledgling, nascent, new new... new global parliament um and that would be sort of the advisory arm of that global parliament do you see potential in that do you see like technologically that that could work or would people be too afraid would they would they be able to have um a secret vote uh like they're meant to have um in democracies now um how do you think that would work Do you think that's a desirable idea or something that's just pie in the sky
1: Well, I mean, I guess I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think that it's, um, I think that it would be an interesting thing to try. I'm not sure, you know, I am a very big skeptic of uh, internet voting. Um, I think that our global networks are very, very fragile. They're easy to hack. We're living in a time where I think people are really feeling that and understanding how insecure our um, electronic systems are. Um, And so um, I think that, uh, we have a lot, a long way to go before I would want to use the internet as a way for people to try to, uh, make a vote like that. Um, I am actually kind of old school. I think paper ballots, um, are the right way to go. Now that doesn't mean you couldn't have paper ballots that got tabulated and and combined and, 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 and turned into a global vote. I mean, we, you know, that's not, that's not, um, crazy to think that could happen, but I'm not sure that, You know, I I really do think that our digital technologies, we have so far to go um, to develop secure digital technologies before I would want to trust anything like a real vote to them.
0: Uh, I mean, most people are happy to use their phones or their computers to do banking now. Oh, it's it's very different. They trust trust the Internet to manage their financial affairs for the most part.
1: No, but it's very different. First of all, we want to have a, we, you know, the, the systems that make sure that when you think you're doing a transaction with your bank, you're actually doing a transaction with your bank are, are pretty tied to your identity. Um, in fact, all of the key ones are. Um, but that would mean you can't have a secret ballot. And I think that as a society, we understand the need to have a secret ballot. So people can't do vote selling. There can't be coercion. There can't be all sorts of things. And so they're very different technical propositions, voting and banking. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I, I, I understand why that's, those two seem pretty similar to most people because they're both things where you really, you know, people have a lot of trust they're very different as technological things. I've spent a lot of time trying to help educate people in the United States and around the world about the dangers. Um, and you know you you mentioned earlier and this is something that honestly I spend more of my time on than anything else which is we've turned our digital networks into a surveillance systems on people because we didn't build in strong security to begin with and now we're trying to bolt it on in some places and you know the Australian government and the United States government and the UK government are leading in the wrong direction in terms of making sure people can't have security online so um, You know, trusting your vote to something like that, um, where, you know, your local government, probably foreign governments, probably rogue agents around the world could all have access to that, to manipulate it, um, to nullify it, uh, or to, to watch you while you're doing it such that if you're, you know, vulnerable to your own government, you could be at risk. We have to solve all of those problems before we should entrust something as important as our vote to the digital networks. Um, again, that doesn't mean we can't do a fine form of a vote, but it's gonna look very different than banking on your phone. Um, and, and it should, if you really wanna honor it. You know, we, we have data breaches, we have data leaks, we have, you know, attacks, you know, we spend a lot of time at EFF trying to, you know, we're building a system called a certificate authority to try to secure the web. A certificate authority is the way that when you think you're going to your bank, you're actually going to your bank. Um, and there wasn't one until four, three or four years ago, except at a very high price paid by people. We, we, we built one uh, with help from Mozilla and other people uh, and a bunch of other things with, through something called ISRG, the Internet Security Research Group, to actually build a certificate authority that was easy to use and free so that web browsing would become more secure. Um, these are all things that we've had to build. Um, so I am I I would like to see us get a lot further down the line in having um, real security in our digital networks before we entrust something like our vote to them.
0: I mean, how far are we from having real security? Would you say for most people, like most ordinary internet users, like you know, how secure are they compared I, to what I, they should be, in your opinion? I,
1: I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, we're lucky. We're lucky. We're not lucky. I mean, we, we have a a system with our credit cards where your credit card company, uh, most credit card companies will, will absorb the loss if your credit card gets stolen. Um, and, You know they have they do that because they make so much money off of us that they can absorb the loss and still be highly profitable. Um, Mm -hmm. That's great for credit card companies, um, and and it means that we can have commerce online. But it's not really true of a lot of other systems. And you know, in the United States, we had very sensitive information uh, from the from the Office of Personnel Management in the United States, uh, which is the 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 place that that checks people for security clearances. So they have very, very sensitive information about people. That got, you know, hacked. Um, We've had systems with hospitals where the hospital gets attacked by malware and and held for ransom and people can't have their... You know, they they can't have their surgeries because their hospital records and their hospital systems are all locked up and being held for ransom. We've got a long way to go. I mean, luckily, most people most of the time are not daily suffering the consequences of this, um, Mm -hmm. which is great. But I don't think that's the same thing as having a secure system. That's kind of like, you know, you know, putting your fingers in your ears and singing and hoping the effects don't happen on you. But people suffer identity theft um, at record levels. Um, Our data is sloshing around all over the place. People now have their DNA data sloshing around. Um, It's really not a secure uh, system. Um, What we see is that the effects of it are not felt equally, though. Um, If you're a journalist who is being targeted by a foreign government, if you're an activist um, who's being targeted by a government, um, this sloshing around can be very, very dangerous for you. For the rest of us, you know... uh, uh people who are on the top of society um we don't feel the effects very much but I, I think that we're kidding ourselves if we think that's because the systems are secure
0: Mm-hmm. right now just back to the the whole question of um the origins of the internet and um the financial position in which many of the early um Companies are now in vis a vis everyone else. In other words, the growth, the, the massive growth of the billionaire class over the past 30 years, many of whom, perhaps even most of whom, are somehow linked to the tech field. Um, I mean, there's around, I believe, 3,000 billionaires in the world right now, which have, all of whom have clearly disproportionate levels of ultimate power, not just economically, but politically as well. Um, so there is a link between our, you know, emerging technological world and the growth of a super economic elite, um, which is very closely linked to one another. Um, some ideas have been floating around lately at the international level with regard to how to deal with this question of, you know, ever growing inequality, um, not just inequality based upon the wealthy world versus the poorer world, but the inequality of particular individuals vis-a-vis everyone else. And, you know, you could fit six or 10 or 20 people in the room I'm sitting in now who would, you know, collectively have a wealth level over a trillion dollars, you know, like far higher than probably, you know, a third of humanity, um, the, the third poorest part of humanity. So we have this, we have inequality at levels that we've never before seen. So some people have floated proposals that, you know, how do we actively reduce that? And how do we, do we even accept the premise that there should be billionaires on planet Earth? I mean, should economic systems, political systems even allow that to, um, to be the case? And there are pretty strong arguments against it. One I read recently proposed uh, a wealth cap. Uh, uh, in this novel, I, I read a, a Dutch novel the other day, a German novel that was translated into Dutch. Um, and in that novel, you know, the guy was positing that no one on the planet Earth should have more than twenty-five million euros, and once you reach that level, um, you would basically be subject to one hundred percent tax as a tool to, you know, prevent the formation of ever-growing levels of inequality. So, you got any thoughts on that? You must be around those in those circles somewhat in the. Silicon
1: Valley. No, not really i don't i don't know any billionaires you know not everybody who lives in silicon valley is one um um and you know there are plenty of rich people in other sectors i actually think wall street and finance and 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 lots of people i mean i you know i i have no great love for the internet billionaires but i think that they are getting a lot of attention outsized uh to their actual size um, um right now because everybody there's a tech lash going on right where everything wrong has to be the fault of tech and i i worry as i said there's a lot of babies in that bathwater, but they're certainly not jeff bezos or or, or <laughs> any of the or mark zuckerberg um so i i no i don't i don't hang out with uh, with those kinds of people and they don't really um you know eff is not um you know we we say good things about them when they do good things and bad things about them when they say bad things um you know I I um so I don't have strong feelings about I mean I do think that there's lots of ways that we can make our society more fair um, and that we ought to try, you know, there's lots of, you know, big shifts we can make about the kinds of subsidies that we already give to the rich versus the, the penalties we, we put on the poor. Um, you know, I think that the way in the, in the United States, the way our tax system works, you know, it really rewards the people on top and punishes those at the bottom. Um, you know, uh-huh. if you, if you own property, you get this big tax, uh, 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 you get, you know, you get a, you get your mortgage, you know, you get a big tax break for your mortgage. Um, if you're poor and you have to go and get, um, you know, food for your kids, you, you have to give up your privacy, um, and be surveilled in order to have that. I think there's lots of things we could do to make our systems more fair. I think that, uh, you know, um, again, this is kind of beyond my expertise as EFF's executive director or more me as an individual, but I, I do think there's lots of ways that we could, um, you know, balance things out, um, in terms of the incentives and in terms of the way we tax, uh, uh, people in order to, in order to make it, to make it work better. You know, I, I have lots of friends who, uh, do work around the environment. And the amount of subsidies we give to, you know, uh, polluting uh, in, uh, uh, energy sources versus non-polluting energy sources. I mean, it's just crazy. It's way out of balance. Um, so, you know, I'm in favor of taking a hard look at the way we tax things and try to make them, make our taxing incentives fit, um, you know, what, where we want society to go. And in so many, many ways, that's the exact opposite of how we do things now. Um, where the rich get it easy and the poor end up giving, paying. And And again, they don't just pay in terms of money. They pay in terms of their privacy. They pay in terms of being surveilled um, we know that, you know, and this is in, in my world, uh, especially, you know, we know that surveillance disproportionately affects the poor people and marginalized people, whereas rich people, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, they, they don't get surveilled all the time. They have, they can, aff- you know, they, they, they get a lot more privacy than the rest of us. So whether you're talking about money or you're talking about privacy, um, we need to think about how to build a world that really protects everybody and not just protects uh, people who already have needs.
0: Do you think most people realize the extent to which they are being surveilled online in terms of record keeping and uh, all of those other matters related to, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it, sifting up, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it, a mega, mega data data? mass collection tools, all of that stuff that's being used by security agencies. You think most people realize the extent to which they are being watched? I don't,
1: think, I don't know. It's hard to know who most people are. I mean I I find that um I find that most people who are activists who are worried about governments have a pretty good idea. They're just resigned to it. I think we're we're in a time now where people around the world are recognizing the role of corporate surveillance. Um Um, and this is the place where, you know, where Facebook, Facebook and Google, you know, they track you, I believe that Google has trackers on around 80% of the internet, uh, one way or another. And Facebook, of course, um, you know, has, has trackers all over as well. Um, and I think people are starting to recognize that they're starting to see, really understand how that business model works, how, you know. Facebook's tool, you know, that, you know, I don't think of Google even as really a service organization. They're just a data collection organization and all the things that they give to people are just ways to get more data. Um, so I think that people are starting to really recognize that and they're starting to want to see something done. The, the passage of the GDPR, the general data privacy regulation in Europe is a good sign, um, that, uh, lawmakers are beginning to, to recognize this. Um, and so I think it's a really good moment for the longest time. You know, I had been talking about the surveillance business model and, um, you know, uh, the, 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 my name for it didn't, didn't take off, but now people are talking about surveillance capitalism all over the place. And it's, it's the same idea that, that there is this business model that's based on tracking people, um, and the theory of, you know, advertising, um, uh, being a slightly, slightly, slightly better. If you know more about people, which is, we're beginning to blow holes in, in some of these theories, but, um, that this is the, the kind of, um, central, you know, has become the central business model of the internet. And it didn't have to be, um, but it became that. And I think people are really starting to realize that they're starting to get creeped out about it. Facebook's numbers are going down. Um, um, and the other piece of this, and the one that you started the question with, is you know, the, the standing behind all these companies is, are the are the governments of the world who 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 snitch who snatched this information up from you know not just the facebooks and the googles of the world, but our ISPs in the United States, the AT&Ts and the Verizon's and the you know the telecommunications companies um, uh, provide information about us or provide access to their systems so the governments of the world can, can have information about us. At a, at a real really um, I think shocking rate. Um, so I think people are starting to wake up more and more certainly on the corporate side and I'm hopeful um, that that you know that, the, the pulling back on the corporate side will lead people to pull back on the government side as well because you know the the way to get to a digital world that serves you and me and that's that, that helps us um, build the world that you're talking about is regaining some of our privacy and our ability to control, what happens to the information about us that, 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 you know, is generated when we act online.
0: Right. How about digital currencies? Do you see, uh, you know, a growth trajectory for those or have they had their day already? And if they do succeed, how will those ultimately be subject to tax?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I do think that, um, Uh, You know, what's interesting to me about digital currencies is an ability to overcome the and and avoid the kind of financial censorship that we've seen in instances around the world where, you know, a government gets angry at somebody who's organizing and basically chokes them of financial resources by stopping their ability to get, um, you know, uh, payments, whether that's through Visa or MasterCard or PayPal or, you know, the global financial system. So I think building a way that uh, the governments of the world can't financially choke uh, people who are doing political organizing is really important. Um, so I, I, I do worry. Um, um, I, do, I do think that there is an interesting role to play um, for digital currencies. I think right now what we're seeing is a lot of speculation um, and a, a lot of kind of gold rush mentality around digital cur- currencies. that is not particularly helpful, and certainly isn't very much about freedom and, and rights. Um, and I, I, you know, I, you know, the currencies have now lost quite a bit of their market. A lot of them have, but they still keep coming. I, I think that'll shake out over time. Um, we're, we're starting to see regulators look at these um, currencies, um, but I, I do worry that a lot of the Proposals that I've seen about these things are really trying to, um, reassert governmental control over money um, and you know as somebody who really is a you know a long history of how opposition movements get going and how people you know struggle for human rights making sure that people can have access you know aren't financially starved if they're pissing off the government that they're under um, is an important piece of, of a human rights framework and one that we need to make sure that we protect.
0: Right, right, and and what about some um, um, automation and things of that nature, you know, um, down the road and the the link there to the internet technology algorithms etc. I mean, do you see? Are you worried that that uh, the projections of job losses will be as high as they allegedly will be um, down the road and. If so, what do we do about that? What do we do with a you know, hundreds of millions of people that are unable to work any longer?
1: Well, I mean, I I guess I I, I stand a little with Alexandria Cortiz Cortez Cortez on this, oh my, I just messed up her name. I feel so bad. AOC, mm-hmm. um, you know, who says, "Look, we shouldn't, you know, like making people's, you know, uh, creating a situation where drudgerous jobs are not, don't have to be done anymore um, and freeing people up to have more leisure time and more balance in their lives ought to be a goal for everybody. Um, It's just that we have to do it in a way that rises all boats, but I I don't think keeping people in, you know, jobs where they're picking through trash in order to make a few pennies a day, you know, um, is the right model forward for our society. I think if we can automate those jobs, We ought to automate those jobs and then we ought to make sure that people have a basic income, that people have other things they could do, that they have education, that they have a way forward in our society. But I think artificially, you know, you know, uh, holding back what the way technology can make people's lives easier, because that's the only jobs we can offer to poor people in our society is, is kind of backwards thinking. I think we ought to try to. You know, we don't I don't think people should throw out their vacuum cleaner so that everybody has to have somebody pay somebody to come clean their house. I think that 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 technology can make everybody's lives better and everybody's lives a little less drudgerous. And we have to solve the problem that people don't have enough work um, or people don't have education or don't have the means to support themselves unless they do these drudgerous tasks that could be automated. I just think we have to solve that problem um, separately, um, and, and, and adopt a system where everybody gets education, everybody gets a chance to express themselves and everybody gets a chance to have jobs that are meaningful for them rather than preserving, you know, drudgerous jobs, um, by denying ourselves the benefits of, of automation.
0: Um, mm-hmm. I mean, new jobs will of course be created, uh, to deal with automation. And, and we've been through, you know, many historical epochs where, uh, a large number of people were doing a certain job, uh, you know, agriculture in particular. That was that were then replaced by, you know, tractors and, and other machinery, and things didn't go that badly. Um, but I think there's a view by some people that, you know, the the continuing continual growth of the role of technology in society, algorithms, automation, etc., will ultimately lead beyond all the economic and social questions to essentially a merger of machine and human whereby what we are now as humans will no longer be the case as time goes on.
1: Well, as, I'm not, a, I mean, I'm really not a, you know, this is, a, you're, you're articulating this thing called the singularity uh, where machines and humans are merging together. And I, I guess I'm, Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of issues intertwined in there. I I think it's going to be, I think machines using machines to help humans do things better, as long as humans are in control of those things is a good thing for people. Again, it's, it's the difference between having to, you know, you know, walk from one part of the world to another, to actually being able to get on a train, to be able to get into a car, to be able to get into a plane. These are, these are things that, that, that certainly, you know, you know, the people who build buggy whips, uh, who, who made buggy whips went out of business when people had cars and they didn't need buggy whips anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that the answer to that is to make sure the people who build buggy whips have, um, have, you know, have, have a society that treats them fairly and gives them better options. Um, and not just remedial, like a couple of job training things and we're done, but I mean, things like universal basic income, like, real um access to uh to skills to be able to move forward um and and you know i i i really do believe that that's a better world but more importantly like we're not going to stop the pace of innovation we never have as a society so um you know we've never decided you know we've never had a, a, a a way to make people's lives uh, simpler and less drudgerous that we didn't actually embrace as a society. So I think it's a little um, folly to think that we would anyway. Um, I would rather embrace the things that make humans better um, and, um, and, and, and technology that can, can augment human capabilities and then really work hard and make a commitment as a society to take care of everybody in society. I, I just I think that, that that those two things have to go hand in hand and, and for too long we've had one without the other um, and that's why we've left people behind and frankly in this country anyway that's where a lot of this resentment that that we're worried about has come up you know has come from. Um, so, so it's important to pay real attention to it and not just lip service, but I don't think advocating that people just, you know, don't enjoy the benefits, um, that technology can give them is a going to work or be the right way to go. Um, to me, the most important thing is who's, who, who's in control of the technology Um, And right now, I mean, you mentioned algorithms a couple times and machine learning systems. Um, I think that we are seeing a real, uh, you know, sea change in thinking about algorithmic decision making where we're recognizing that humans have to be in charge of what's going on. And we have to understand how these systems work well enough to be able to interrogate them, to be able to have due process, to be able to recognize when Um, You know, the, the dirty data that's going into these things is resulting in dirty, you know, dirty conclusions coming out. We've seen this with predictive policing, these systems that try to, you know, that are sold as predicting who the criminals are, but really just predict what police will do and reinforce the biases of the police. So it's not to say that this stuff is magically going to make everything better. I, I very much don't think that, and, and I've you know I spent 29 years warning about the dangers of not thinking hard about surveillance, about how privacy is eroding, and those kinds of things. So I I hope I have some authority to say you know I'm not a Pollyanna about technology. Um, but I also don't think that the current wave of, well, let's just pretend like technology isn't here and isn't going to exist and that we can we can kind of um, you know pretend like we don't have technology or say no to it. Um, I don't think that's particularly realistic. We, we have to really face it and make sure that we stay in control.
0: Thank you so much, Cindy. That was a great conversation. I hope it was useful to all of you. And we look forward to having you back with us when we have episode 10 shortly. Have a great day, everybody. Talk gently on the earth.